This is the Find Your Forte Podcast, episode 59. You have the passion. You have the education. Now it's time for the inspiration. Get ready to step up to the podium with purpose. This is the Find Your Forte Podcast with Coral Director and Lifestyle Entrepreneur, Ryan Guth. Hey there, Choir Nation. This is Ryan Guth with the Find Your Forte podcast, and I am delighted to have with me today Patrick Dupre Quigley, and he is joining me from his home in Washington, D.C., and I'm very excited to have him today because he is the conductor of one of my favorite professional choirs, Seraphic Fire. Now, I'm going to let him do a little bit more introduction of himself in just a second, but before... I do that. I need to ask him a question. Patrick, Choir Nation is ready. They're at the edge of their chairs, folders open, and looking your way. Are you ready to deliver the downbeat? Let's do it. All right, Patrick, thank you. It is so wonderful to have you on the show today. It's really great to be here. So, Patrick, if I strolled up to you at a Chorus America convention and I said, Patrick, what do you do? Assuming that I have no idea, what would you tell me? Um, wow, that's a great question. As you know, we as conductors, we do many, many things. I think that I would say to you, first and foremost, I'm a musician. Uh, I'm a conductor who works primarily with professional orchestras and professional choirs. Uh, and I'm also an artistic entrepreneur. So that's that's the quick version. <laughs> so does your answer change based on who you're in front of? Maybe let's say you're in front of a non-musical audience would would your answer change? I don't think so. No, because I think, you know, as entrepreneurs, you know, if 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 I said I was just an entrepreneur, I don't think that that does justice to what to what we do as say artistic entrepreneurs. You know, I'm a musician first and my musicianship has pushed me to become an entrepreneur because I want to get what I do out there and I want to make a living and I want to also I I think that you know, what I and what my ensemble does is important and it's worth people hearing and consuming. And so I think the entrepreneurship came as a result of being a musician. So I don't, I don't think it changes, but I, I, I do think that, you know, um, perhaps I might stress one thing more than the other, depending on, depending on where, but always a musician first. Now, a lot of entrepreneurs consider themselves to be re- relatively unemployable type people. Do you feel as though you fall into that category? Uh, no, I mean, I hope not. <laughs> we, uh, as uh, Half of my life is, is, a, is as a guest conductor, so I, I do hope that, uh, that people do find me at least somewhat, if only temporarily, employable. Um, but, I, you know, I think that entrepreneurs have a particular bent toward um, finding ways of doing things uh, as that are not exactly the way that they've been done before. I think that convention is one of those things that I think if you got a bunch of entrepreneurs into a room and asked them what they thought about convention, there'd be a lot of sort of eye rolling. Uh, and and I think that, that that that's really the entrepreneurial personality, which is not accepting convention as gospel. They're problem solvers. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's definitely that's definitely what we end up doing. How do I get from A to B 
in a lot shorter time than has been happening before. So I'm, I'm going to come back to that, but I do want to go back to the unemployable thing for a second. Because <laughs> even as a guest conductor, you are still the captain of your own ship. And, and so did you ever find yourself frustrated in an employment situation that you said, you know what, this doesn't feel right to me. And I'm asking this completely selfishly because because I find it very difficult um, to not be the captain of the ship. So um, this is a selfish question for me. Sorry, Choir Nation, but I'm sure there are other people out there that feel the way I do that maybe don't feel as though they have permission to feel that way. Um. So I mean, I think there's two answers to this question. Yes, I have been in situations where where I think that um, that a bad employment situation uh, was something that thrust me to to sort of leap onto my dreams of being an entrepreneur quicker than I perhaps would have in in other ways. I mean, I think that I think that I've always been sort of destined for the path of being an entrepreneur of some stripe or another. I, before, actually, sorry, while I started Ceramic Fire, I started simultaneously while taking over a really large church program in South Florida. Um, and I was spending, you know, I spent three years in that job. And um, I think musically, it was incredibly fulfilling. Um, as an employee, it was it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through. Um, I had a boss who was, uh, who uh, I try to find a polite way to say this. It's hard to say. That's okay. <laughs> I, uh, I, I had a boss who, um, who he and I did not click from a personality standpoint. I think most um, people have bosses they don't click with from a personality standpoint. <laughs> um, but, but I think that a, a, a sort of you know two two Irish people in the room came went from being sort of jocularly sort of you know teasing to something that became adversarial to the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, I was already at that point thinking about when Seraphic Fire would become my full time employment. And I think that that was the that was one of the big things that pushed me over into just saying, look, if I'm spending five percent of my time working on this one project, which is sort of taking off, if I scale up to 100 percent of my time, can I make it my living in eight to 12 months? Um, And if I had had a wonderful boss and an incredibly fulfilling job, uh, would I have taken that step? It probably wouldn't have been, I probably wouldn't have done it as quickly and maybe I wouldn't be where I am now. Um, at, at this point, I sort of, th- I'm, I'm very thankful for that job because it taught me, um, it taught me what, one, what I never want my employees to feel about me, but also what my limits are as to what I can take. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot, but I know that I never want to get to that place again. I know what the, I know what the warning signs are now. Okay, and, so can uh, you, Patrick? Sorry to interrupt, but can you bring us back to I mean, give us a very like very quick overview of little Patrick, <laughs> and and then how Seraphic Fire got its got its beginnings? Because I mean, I know it started with seven people, three concerts a year, much like most most you know, professional startup choral ensembles. And, and tell us how 
it started and got from seven people, three concerts a year to where it's at now? And this is going to be probably a long answer, and that's okay, but I'm willing to listen. Uh, so I, um, you know, I've been I've been working with choirs, uh, and really, actually, sort of professional or people who were professionals who perhaps were not getting paid since I was 13. Um, I got my first real choir master organist gig when I was 13 in high school. I substituted for my choir teacher at the time at a church that she was a sub for. They were without. And she she was not going to commit every Sunday to doing this, but she said, I have a student who's, a, you know, who's an organist and who's also, you know, has, has aspirations toward doing a little bit more in terms of choral music. And so it was a, it was a church in New Orleans East, uh, Claiborne Presbyterian Church. And I got there and I played a service and it went well. And they said, would you like to stay around and, 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 and be our, you know, be our organist? And I said, that'd be great. And they said, oh, and by the way, the organist also conducts the choir. Um, the choir was seven people who, all of whom had been professional singers at some point in their lives. Some of them continued to be, uh, some of them had moved on to other jobs, but all of them were members of the church. And this was sort of their, their ministry was to be, be the seven person choir, uh, and, uh, how did that go, Patrick? I mean, you're 13 years old. How did, were you taken seriously? I had a I had a hell of a lot to learn, um, and so for the first year, um, rehearsals sort of went like I you know I would ask them, okay, what did you usually sing this week last last year or in pe- previous years? And they would give me some suggestions. I'd play. I'd figure out the things one that I could actually play, um, and so once we narrowed that down, we started working on it, um, and they sort of they sort of taught me how to lead them. Um, that's they would, awesome. They would they would say things like, "Look, right here, you need to when you, when you're playing that, we need to know where to breathe. So you need to breathe for us here." Or, um, you see, when you play it like that, that, it's so slow that we can't sing that all the way through without taking a breath. Can you play it faster? Um, and so my first year on the job, they were very willing to sort of treat it almost like a masterclass for me. <laughs> um, that's and, the coolest thing ever. Like, yeah, that's really better was. than any degree program you will ever have. It, it, it was a pretty amazing experience. And so um, the next three years, I got this, I think, I guess it was I, midway through my freshman year of high school. And for the next three and a half, for the first year, they taught me and then I started to listen to other things and getting into trying to find things that would work, particularly for, it's a very small choir. I had one tenor, one bass, two altos and two sopranos Um, and trying to, and then another person who would come in and out depending um, and trying to figure out one, how to get them all there to a rehearsal on a Wednesday night. Um, I would call each of them individually and remind them at three o'clock in the afternoon that they had choir practice that night just oh so my that we, God. Could have, we could all be there and then you I and your little crackling pubescent voice right exactly and so i would uh, you know i had been in i'd been in my first honor choir about a year ahead a year before and um i was singing in the symphony youth course and i started bringing pieces that we had done for the symphony chorus and started using it with this, with this sort of small, 
formerly professional church choir. And so they really sort of got into it. And we started to, we explored many, many, many areas of the rep, some of which should never be done by a 14 year old with six formerly <laughs> professional people. Yeah, I knew that was coming. <laughs> but, you know, there was a lot of failure during that time. But then from those failures, there came some really amazing successes. And I think as, you know, eight people total, I really sort of, one, learned what it was like to have everyone who read music, but also people who were committed to the art form and were really, really willing to do something different than the 25 anthems that they had done for the 10 years prior. And what a great time to fail too. I mean, it's such a low risk time in your life to fail. Yeah. And the, you know, the pastor was, the pastor was a musician himself. His wife was in the choir. Oh, is that a Um, good thing? That's never a good thing. As far as I'm concerned. It was a great thing because they like liked music. And so they didn't, they liked music enough that, you know, he would pick, he all, I never picked the hymns, which I think was a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I was, I grew up Roman Catholic and this is a Protestant church. And so, um, I would try to find things that were based on these hymns and looking back to older stuff. And so it, it was, it was a really, it was a really eye opening experience for me, but it was, I mean, I think that they were my greatest teachers. Um, I, I learned, I learned the human voice and the professional singer really from the inside out in a non-judgmental mentorship way in the way that say singers used to learn how to sing, you know, 200 years ago where you would go at 13 to become the, you know, the lawn, like the lawn boy for your, for your teacher and take a lesson every day for an hour. And they would be there as you, as you warmed up and as you sang and, and, and you did it every day. And then you went and you, worked on the lawn and you, you you did the laundry and you cooked. Um, and it, I, I sort of had that as a conductor. And so, yeah, I, I started my conducting life really when I was 13. That's so. awesome. Wow. So do you keep in touch with anybody from that church? Uh, I really did until um, just after Katrina. The church was actually completely destroyed oh, during mother. Katrina. And so I, I stayed in touch with them, but they all, and I'm, and I, I remember I saw, you know, a couple of my former singers in the airport when I was going home to New Orleans for, uh, for, for Christmas one year. Um, but I used to go back when I would be home and just sit in on, on a, on a service and say hi to everybody at the end or, but they, but they all had to find many of them moved to different places and are all around the country now. So, or have passed away. So it's, um, it's uh, I, I, I don't see them that much anymore. I, I wish I did, but I, I honestly don't know where they are. I just hope they know how much they did for you. I do too. You know, I, I, I went back as long as there was a place to go back to, um, which is a, I mean, which is another story in and of itself of being someone from New Orleans, uh, where, where our, you know, our lives were all entirely changed by that storm, yeah. and and. Even those who don't, uh, us who don't live there, you know, there are parts of our personal history which don't exist anymore. Okay, so, so give us the thirty second from thirteen through two thousand two, and then tell us a little bit about starting Seraphic Fire. Sure. Uh, so leaving once I graduated uh, from uh, f- graduated from high school, 
I went to Notre Dame to become a chemical engineer. Uh, that lasted for a year, and I despised it. So I told my parents that I was changing my major to music, and they said, oh, thank God, we figured you'd have to figure that out for yourself. We didn't want to tell you that you were making a mistake by being an engineer. But you're Well, that's a surprisingly <laughs> supportive way for a parent to react to that I know, choice. I know. Um, but I think that they had had people all their lives tell them that they needed to do something because of, you know, because of not what they wanted to do, but because of what their parents or what their relatives wanted them to do. And so they, they, they wanted us to be happy. So, uh, so went to Notre Dame, I joined the Notre Dame men's glee club, which is directed by the absolute genius, uh, Dan Stowe. Uh, and we were at a, we were at a, um, a mini concert first two months of my time there and uh dan got caught in traffic and there were 20 of us there for this program that there was no conductor our assistant conductor wasn't there um and the president of the glee club said look when we talked to you in in our in our interview when you were coming in you said you conducted choirs when you were in high school and i said yeah they said well you're conducting this concert so good luck wow <laughs> it sort of pushed me on um and so i i started I, I became the assistant assistant conductor to the to dan stowe uh starting starting two two months into my freshman year of college um and then i also started a a a, uh, an acapella group at the University of Notre Dame called the Undertones, which still is happening today. We're actually having our oh, we're having our twenty year reunion uh, in September, so that's sort of nuts. Wow! Um, but and from that, I learned how to tour a group and how to make money from CD sales and from ticket sales and that sort of thing. From there, I went to Yale and I did my masters in conducting there um, with the incredible Maggie Brooks. And from there, I moved down to Florida, uh, to Miami, to take over this very large uh, Roman Catholic church job. And um, uh, I went down there because they had an inordinate amount of money. And I was thinking about going to get a second uh, grad degree in orchestral conducting, because that's sort of my other love. And... Um, and they knew that, that that I was thinking about that, and they said, "What would it take to keep you here for three years?" And I said, "Well, I really have always wanted to start a professional choir." Thinking about Chanticleer, actually, in my mind at that point, and uh, and the 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 pastor said, "Well, how much does that cost?" And I named a number that I thought was really big at the time, and he said, "Okay, what what else will keep you here for three years?" <laughs> and so, um, for the first three years, oh, you, you, didn't, you didn't negotiate hard enough on that one. <laughs> I know. I was uh, looking back. I was like, "Wow, I could have really done a lot." Better. Choir Nation, if they say yes to your first number, it is way too low. <laughs> well, no, actually, Choir Nation. Here's the real rule: never be the person to say the first number. Well, that's also true. Yes, that is true. <laughs> and if and if and if they say and if they and when they say the number. You look at them, you smile, and you say, "I'm sorry, but you're going to have to do better than that." <laughs> yes. Or let me let, let me talk that over with my husband, <laughs> and then you come back with something considerably larger. Um, but so I came there, and so for the first three years, Traffic Fire actually was 
one of the branches of the church's music program. Um, it was not part of the liturgical life of the church. I actually did. At that point, I was doing six masses a weekend. Um, I had four children's choirs, a professional adult choir, another volunteer adult choir, a Spanish choir, and then orchestral music um, for all of the masses, uh, usually three uh, once every three or four weeks. So my last year there, I think I had 200 people in the choral program and, you know, we did 12 Bach cantatas in the course of the liturgy over the year, as well as the, you know, the normal, the normal music and Gregorian chant and composed propers and those sorts of things. So it was sort of high church, um, high church Catholic. And, um, and so the first three years we, you know, they wanted to, it was a new church. It was a, it was an incredibly built uh, neo-Gothic building. It had been opened six months before I arrived there and had acoustics done by Kierkegaard. And they wanted people to come into the church. And so I designed a concert series, 13 concerts a year. And um, Traffic Fire was the center of that concert series. Uh, and we, uh, we, we got to the point where um, third year there, I think when we are – our Messiah had 1500 people there. The, there was not a seat to be had for our, our B minor mass. Uh, so, um, that's, that's sort of, that's sort of how Seraphic Fire began, um, began simultaneously with my beginning this job, um, at a church in Miami. Um, so I want to point out to choir nation that you didn't just start a professional choir. You actually had something built in, um, that, that helped to sort of boost uh, this choir's ability to reach an audience, which was funding from the church, and that you were able to, to make them a centerpiece of a concert series. So, so, I mean, that's a little bit of sort of hacking the system, you know, in your favor to start this, this ensemble. I mean, this is not just totally from scratch. I mean, it was from scratch, but it, it sounds like you had an initial bit of support to get started. We they did. I mean, it, I, the, the fact that we had our budget taken care of for three years was an amazing thing. It was also for year four when we went out on our own, um, and we had only given free concerts at that point. Uh, one of the things about the church concert series was that it was free. And so, uh, you know, people, we would have gobs and gobs of people who were exposed to us and exposed to the music that we were doing. But, um, you know, year four, I had to get people to actually pay for tickets in a place where we had never performed before, um, where I no longer, where I had to create my own concert series. And so it was a, you know, it was a, it was a very big transition. So if you started Um, from three, uh, three concerts a year with seven people by year four, what did that look like? Uh, year four, I think we did, 15 concerts and I probably employed 15 concerts, which was, uh, five programs, three times each. And I think that we probably had a roster at that point of 28 people. And being paid Uh, by a call or were they being paid at all? Or how, how was that working? Uh, being paid, uh, being paid by call, uh, at that point, we all so the 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 history of Seraphic Fire from a musical standpoint is that many of many, if not all, of the people who were in that first iteration, the first year of Seraphic Fire, were people who uh, had 
been part of the master's or doctoral degree program at the University of Miami and sang under uh, Dr. Mike Scheibe, mm-hmm. uh, who is who is one of the who is one of the choral sound geniuses out there. Um, there's a reason, you know, he's that, that, you know, his name and know the music that he's published and the music that he's commissioned. It's because he's an incredible musician and trains a choir as well as anyone, anyone there is. Uh, and so there were no, and of- by the way, he's also episode 24 of the find oh, your forte podcast. Right? So yeah. Head on over to ryanguth.com forward slash zero two four to listen to an awesomely inspiring conversation with Dr. Joe Michael Scheibe. So, okay, continue, Patrick. And props to Mike. Uh, hopefully he's listening. So, uh, uh, the, uh, and so there are a number of first year masters and doctoral students in both voice and choral conducting who started the group with me. Um, and by when I was starting year four, all of those people had were at that point had completed their master's or doctorates and had moved on to other jobs. The vast majority of them were moving as I was leaving my, my sort of my job at the church. uh, They were moving to all over the country to take jobs where, you know, the academic life led them. And so um, I had a choice to make. I had to figure out, Either I'm going to have to start over from scratch every three years to find university students and hope that Mike stays at the University of Miami um, to find university students and former university students who live within uh, driving distance of of South Miami uh, to make this program or we can change the way we do rehearsals. We at this point we were rehearsing, you know, once a week on a Tuesday night for three hours. We would have seven 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 weeks of rehearsal and then a concert. Um, figured, well, let's. Why don't we try to keep the keep the band together and bring everyone back to Miami? And so we sort of built into the fee that people got. There was a per call. In addition, there was a travel and meal stipend that we gave an X amount that people would buy their plane tickets and would also give them some extra money for food while they were in town. And we put them all up at host families, uh, and we 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 had we had we had volunteers who would either pick them up or or uh, would loan cars for that time period. So. Um, and so we started that way, and some of those people s- couldn't get off for the first season for all of the concerts, and so we started looking around for other people who could fly in and perform with us. And uh, I mean, I think a lot of a lot of people who perhaps follow the professional choral world know the names of these people who were like me, sort of you know, baby professional choir people at the time, um, Catherine Mueller and James Bass, and uh, Matthew Tressler. Um, these are all people who you know, now run big programs and are a staple of the professional choral scene, but then we were all sort of you know, feeling our way together. So, um, well, and there's a generation of those people growing up right now. So exactly, it was going to be another iteration of something like a seraphic fire or something like that's hopefully more unique than, than what you've already done. But, but you know, this is, this is, I want to point out to choir nation. I mean, that, that 
you know, that Patrick found a group of people that um, it was it was filling a need for them to have additional choral experience in uh, in the Miami area, um, and he was able to pay them. He was able to keep the group together, mo- most of the group together after they departed, um, and bring them back. Now, what what happened with the funding? after those three years? I mean, where, did you at one point, like how did you split off of the church? Um, in the last four months while I was at the church, I was also establishing the 501c3 for the organization. Uh, and we sold subscriptions for the next year. Uh, and I figured out that if we could sell 150 subscriptions over the summer, that we could probably make it to our first concert, at which point the ticket sales from the single ticket buyers could get us to our second. Um, so what, so what, what was that What was that number? Do you remember that number? I think it was 150 subscribers. Well, I mean, what was that, what would that equal in, in revenue? Oh, I think it, I mean, I think at that point, I think it was like maybe $30,000. Okay. Uh, uh, it was a, it, it's 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 amount that's an amount that seemed so incredibly large at the time um which once you reach that amount you realize like oh it's not that hard to do that but god if i had to do 30 percent more that's really hard and then mm-hmm. you do 30 then you do 30 percent more and you, but you did time, the numbers i mean you did the numbers and you realize this is what you had to do yeah. in order to make this happen and that you know, I mean, you're essentially bootstrapping at this point and and getting from from your first objective just so, just to meet, to get to the next one. And then you got to use that one to propel yourself into the next one. So um, w- this is this is this is very interesting. W- what um, what was the ticket, the subscription price and f- what do they get for it? I think trying to think of what our ticket price would have been back then but i think that we i think our ticket i think our our single ticket price at that point must have been $25 and we had a we had a subscription rate that was 15% off if you bought all the tickets in advance and we had a senior subscription rate that was twenty percent off if okay. you bought them all before the first concert. And how many? How many concerts would they get? Uh, they get five. Okay. So um, and uh, and so we we did that. I uh, parallel to that. I also um, I had for three years. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a saver, and so I, I had saved enough money that I knew that I could pay my rent and feed myself for 12 months without taking a without taking a salary if uh, if the organization paid the Cobra on my healthcare plan, which is the, for those of you who are listening, when you, if you leave a job and you have healthcare, but you don't have a job that you're going to, uh, your job has to provide you with the ability to pay the amount of the healthcare. And so I, I paid the amount of the healthcare for those 12 months that was being paid for me. This was before the affordable care act. Um, and, uh, uh, otherwise it'd been very, very hard for me to find, uh, to find healthcare on my own. So, uh, 
So uh, Stratifier essentially paid my health care that first year and everything else went to pay for musicians and for my first halftime, at that point, halftime assistant, um, Gabrielle Tinto, uh, who was the first administrator of Seraphic Fire. And so between the two of us, um, she working halftime, although it was substantially more than halftime, uh, and, and me working all the time, uh, but getting paid for none of the time, <laughs> uh, we made it happen. Made so it when happen. did you first start drawing a salary? Eight months in. So eight months I, into leaving your 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 job, yes. Okay. Yes, eight months in. I mean, it was, and it wasn't much of a, it wasn't much of a salary, but it was it was something, you know. It was. I mean, I think it was. I think at that point it was two thousand five. I guess it would have been two thousand six at that point, and I think my first year salary was twenty one thousand dollars. Right, which is poverty. Yes. <laughs> But it was poverty with the possibility of being a slightly less poverty the year later. Well, wait, wait. <laughs> so, well, now, were you doing something else to supplement your income at the time? Uh, I was. I was playing. I. I. I was. Uh, I was taking gigs as an accompanist, uh, and so uh, accompanist and an organist. And so I did. Uh, if you. If you have any, or if you have even the most modest of skills of playing the organ, which mine are only modest, I, I'm a reasonable service player, and that's about it. Um, I, there's always there's always someone who wants to take whatever Sunday that you're talking about off, and so I played I I I I, I played a lot of a lot of weekends for a lot of people's vacations. Gotcha. So, gotcha. Um, uh, and I think you know normally it, normally there if if you're if you're an organist most most people have a have a job it's very it's very easy with those skills to get a job um, but I didn't want that I didn't want to be tied to one place because I wanted to focus my attention entirely on ceramic fire and so um, but I was picking up I was picking up extra work doing that also uh, my my adopted Miami mother who was also the president of our board and the founding founding chairman of our board, um, Joanne Schulte, um, she would, she would feed me. I mean, there'd be days where she'd be like, what do you have planned for dinner tonight? And I'd say, uh, I have a can of peas. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, and, and she would be like, come over and I'll feed you. I mean, I, I, I really did survive on the kindness of strangers, but I, well, I guess they weren't strangers at that point, but on the kindness of others, um, Joanne being the primary one for that, for that year and a half. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there'd be days when, you know, she would walk into the office and just hand me a bag of groceries. Um, and you know, having people like that, that's, that's what makes art happen. That's so scary, you know? And I feel, I feel like we identify, uh, by so much by how much money we make and, <laughs> and you know and it's like you know is success defined by how much money we make and and the kind of security that we have especially as as artists we want to you know be secure enough to feel free to make art and and you know when you're doing something like this like bootstrapping a, a professional choir and somebody ha has to hand you you know has to hand you a bag of groceries like what does that feel like to you? Um, it feels like you have someone 
who believes in what you do so much that they're going to go out and buy you groceries. So that's the I mean, right attitude. I mean, that's yeah, the, it's not I, a I, failure. I, it's, yeah, I mean, if you have if you have an issue about relying on other people to help out with things or to provide your income, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur because everything is going to come from someone else. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, when your job is to figure out a way to to serve people's needs. Uh, and if you do that, then, you know, they will in turn serve your needs, whether that be initially like in food and shelter, or will it be at a salary or will it be in a bonus or, you know, these sorts of things that come, that come later on down the line. But, you know, could I have, would I, would I, you know, at that point I was so excited to be doing what I was doing that I didn't care if, you know, if I ate, if I ate trash at that point. Um, and I didn't have to, fortunately, you know, I had, I had people who were caring for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I, 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 I was so hungry for the art and to, and for the group. And it was, you know, it, it was so much a part of what I, I wanted it so bad that I was willing to, to starve for it. Um, and that is something like if, if you are willing, if you, th- if you're willing to like starve for a few months, um, you know, that sort of tests your resolve as to how you committed you are to your, it, oh, to, hell yeah. to, like, your thing. And, and if you're not willing to starve for a few months, like, why aren't you? And if you're not like, then maybe it's not for you. Maybe yeah. this life isn't for you because there've, there've been various times over my 15 years of ceramic fire when, you know, certain things where I've had to defer salary or had to do other things that, you know, comfort went to comfort went to, um, you know, contingency very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, but it's part of the job. It's part of being the boss. It's part of being able to call the shots. Well, entrepreneurs um, also- live a life that no one else would dare to live so that they can <laughs> eventually live a life that no one else can live, you know? So right. it's, it's, at, at- you know, you're, is there's a price to pay for doing what you love every day, but eventually, eventually it pays off if you keep at it. So it does if, if you keep at it and are smart about it. Like let's 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 put two things. In. Well, that's true. <laughs> that is there, true. <laughs> there are plenty of people who keep at it who like will, who never make it because they do crazy, stupid things. Right. <laughs> um, right. Like spending more than you have in the bank every year. Like at some point, it's over. Um, you you know, part of part of being an entrepreneur is serially living below your means. Mm-hmm. No matter how meager those means are, if you listen um, to any profile of an entrepreneur, you, there's always that point where they lived on the floor and they ate grilled cheese. Like that is, <laughs> like yeah. that is the common thread I hear in most successful entrepreneur stories. And I listen to so many in Choir Nation. If you want podcasts to listen to, I'll, I'll give you the ones. But but I mean, honest to God, every entrepreneur sacrifices in order to live their dreams. Yeah. And I think that, you know, like if you're not willing to starve for it, why would anyone else be willing to pay for it? You know exactly. I mean? It's like, like, and, and, you know, starting over is not the, is not the worst thing that can happen to you in your life. That is not the worst thing that can happen. But the worst thing that can happen is never trying and then living with regrets. Oof. Yes. Um, like regrets are, regrets are much worse than an empty bank account. And it's admirable to start over. I mean, when you can, when you can admit 
that you're going down the wrong path and you can and you can correct it. And, you know, people see that and you, and you may, I don't know, you may have people that say, oh, you know, Patrick, you should really, you know, you could do this. It's what is such a safer option. And, you know, but you got to be true to yourself and you got to, you got to say, is this going to be fulfilling to me? And starting over to be more fulfilled and live without regret is, is so admirable. And whether people tell you that or not, I mean, it's, it's such an admirable uh, quality. Yeah. I, I think, you know, as you, Look, I mean, there are there are that very very small percent of people who either luck into insane amounts of wealth, whether it be through their genetics or through simply being in the right place at the right time, and that does happen. But if you wait for that to happen, you're not going to be one of those because those people who that happened to never waited for it. It yep. just it just happened. Um, they hit the lottery and then they are in poverty yes. two years later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just I think that you know the 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 primary thing about entrepreneurship is that I have learned ten times more from my from the rejections and failures that I had than from the immediate successes. Yep. So it sounds um, so cliche, but it's so true. Yeah, it's so I mean, true. It's it, it's amazing what you try to figure out when you're hungry. Um, you, you, it's, it's really easy to make a business plan when your stomach's full, but it's really, you, you actually have to make tough choices when you're, when you're, when you're, when you're hungry and they're usually the right choices from a business standpoint. Um, you know, I, I certainly have stayed up sleepless nights, you know, worrying about whether or not I made the right decision, but in the end, I made the business decision that was going to best benefit the organization and the bottom line, and that would keep the organization running. And I, you know, I think that our longevity has has sort of has has borne that out as the right way to go. But you know, again, if you're just comfortable, I I, I find I, I hear from a lot of people who want to go out and start their own professional choirs, and they're like, "What do you do to do it?" I'm like, "I don't know, just you do it." You know, I mean, right? Like, you just you do, do you, it and and then see what happens. And if it didn't work out, try something yeah. different. <laughs> like, how did you quit your job? And I was like, well, I quit my job. Right. And, and then and then I fi- had to figure out how the how the heck I was going to pay my rent. Exactly. You know? so, it's amazing what that does to your motivation level. I'll tell you that. I mean, yeah. j- taking that jump. You know. Uh, now, now I'll t- I'll tell everyone who's who's who, who are like. Maybe I should just quit my job today. Don't quit your job today. <laughs> um, I planned for. I knew that I was going to leave. I think probably January, February, March, April, five months before I actually did. I made the decision that I was going to quit my job on my birthday, December first, wow. uh, to two thousand four, and I left on May fifteenth, two thousand five. I knew that I was going to quit my job the day I got my job. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I knew at that point. Oh my god! They're like, you give me education forever. I'm like, no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> it sounds like me. It sounds like me being a chemical engineer. Ay ay ay. So, um, but I, you know, I, I. I, I would say you can't. Nothing can be. Nothing can be done out of passion. Like there has to be a lot of passion, but passion without precision and planning is chaos. You know, Patrick, as a relatively impulsive individual, uh, <laughs> I, I know for a fact that passion can get you in a lot of trouble. Um, 
so so how did you manage or how maybe how did you become aware that you needed um, precision along with passion? Did you get into any was there a failure moment in your career where you're like, whoa, I need to I need to grab the reins or something? What what where did you come to that that realization? I mean, I think the failure moment was realizing that even if I got I mean the best Roman Catholic church job in the world. I was not going to be happy. Um, I, I grew up Catholic. I, I went to Catholic schools and I, uh, you know, the only time I ever, the first time I met people who weren't Catholic was when I went to Yale. Um, you know, I'm, I was a, I was an, I was an out everywhere except for work gay man at that point and trying to deal with that. And I knew that I couldn't live in that situation anymore, but all of my knowledge, I mean, even my undergraduate degree was in musicology with a particular emphasis on chant and polyphony. And, um, and I knew that this, like, this was the best Catholic church job I was ever going to get. And I just, didn't I didn't want to do this anymore I, I felt like everything that I sort of worked into doing I, I realized that like I had sort of like it was it was it was wrong like I was on such the wrong track when what I wanted to be doing was be making Gregorian chant and polyphony and new music and broke music and classical music but like not in the confines of a of a belief system mm-hmm. uh and so um and so that was a, re- you know, I, I probably realized that halfway through the three years that I was there, that like, there's a huge identity crisis of being like, I thought this is what I was going to do, but God, I'm, I just, this is not for me. This and, is not for me. <laughs> and like, Choir Nation, you have permission to pursue whatever it is that your passion is. I mean, it, you know, it happened one way for Patrick. It happened one way for me. And, you know, you have to, you can't look at role models in the choral world and think that this is not possible for me or that maybe they've just lucked out or maybe they were in the right place at the right time. Because as Patrick said, it takes passion, it takes precision, and and it takes permission too. So Patrick and I right now are giving you permission um, through his sto- sharing his story uh, to go out and do what you want to do with your artistic life. And, and um, I think... The this starts with with making sure that we have choral heroes in the classroom in, in your classroom choir nation um, from a very young age, so that you are able to have butts in seats when it, when when you finally pursue that passion of yours. So um, I want to make sure that choir nation knows that we're going to wrap this up right now, put a little bow on it have Patrick back next week um, on the Find Your Forte podcast to talk a little bit more about choral heroes and inspiring um, passion for choral music in young choristers, in your students, and how we can we can go about doing that. So Patrick, is there anything you want to leave Choir Nation with this this week and or you want to tease next week a little bit for me uh and and choir nation well i just you know look i mean for everyone who's listening uh i I think that we all have a common set of problems um but the one thing to remember and i i i I used to have this written on my desk and taped to it um 
and my friends and my employees would point to it every once in a while when I would just get too much in a in a bind, which is that there is no such thing as a choral emergency. Um, you, if someone in your choir chokes, that's a medical emergency, and you have to take care of it. But if you are in a place where you are where you are putting yourself into the hospital with so much stress because you don't know how you're going to get your programs printed. These are first world problems. Like step back, <laughs> step back and realize what we're doing and why we're doing it and realize that we, what we do, we don't have emergencies and we have the luxury to be able to take our time and do it right and to bring joy to what we do and not lose sight of the real thing, which is teaching people the joy of this music that means so much to us. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Patrick, I thank you for your time this week on the Find Your Forte podcast, and we will see you next Wednesday for part two of this interview. Thank you so much. Sounds great. All right, Choir Nation, thank you so much for joining me for the first installment of Patrick Quigley on the Find Your Forte podcast. I want to make sure that you know to support the Find Your Forte podcast on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that's like an ongoing Kickstarter. Uh, it allows me to k- keep doing what I'm doing and not eat grilled cheese sandwiches. But, I mean, I, I still like grilled cheese sandwiches, but maybe I just eat more of them uh, or whatever. But it, it allows me to spend more time providing value to you. Um, so there are some wonderful goals that are up on Patreon. The more uh, money that we get contributed across Choir Nation, the more time I will be able to spend working on the Find Your Forte podcast and potentially launch additional podcasts and bring on more interviews and more episodes. So uh, head on over to patreon.com forward slash find your forte. So it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash find your forte. And also show notes for this episode are at ryanguth.com forward slash zero five nine for episode 59. Thank you so much for your time joining me today. I hope that this episode has helped you to step up to the podium with purpose. Thank you for listening to Find Your Forte with Ryan Guth. As always, join Ryan online at www.ryanguth.com for detailed show notes and discussions on every episode. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Until next time, be amazing.